Here's our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to the gospel of Matthew or smartphone device. Matthew is the book that opens up the New Testament. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This morning I will be reading Matthew 11, so right in the middle of the gospel, Matthew 11, verses 20 to 30. Matthew 11, verses 20 to 30. This is what Holy Scripture says. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethesda. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Take your Bibles and open to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. As we approach these three Sundays of Christmas, yes, I know the third one is after Christmas, the 26th, but we're making it a Christmas Sunday. Uh, As we approach these three Sundays, it was our desire to focus our attention on our Lord Jesus. And so uh, we're in this little series that we'll begin today, and we're simply asking the question, why? Why should we love Jesus? And I will seek to answer that question uh, today by answering um, because of who he is. He's gentle and lowly. Uh, The following week, because of what he did in saving us from our sins. And then finally, there on the 26th, uh, because of who he is. He is God. And so I think this will be greatly encouraging to all of us to put our attention on the Lord Jesus and to keep asking ourselves the question, why should we love him? Why should we love this person, Jesus Christ? So that's our aim. And if you've got a Bible there, we'll be in Matthew chapter 11. If you have one of our church Bibles, that's page 700, rather, 765. And I'll be looking at the passage that Patrick read for us earlier. Let's ask the Lord to help us as we open his word. 
Father, thank you for our Bibles and thank you for the fact that you have communicated to us everything we need to know in order to know you. And so we pray for your help and your strength. We pray for grace and for mercy so that we might see and behold our Lord Jesus and love him all the more. He is certainly worth it. And so we pray this in his name. Amen. Not everybody likes it, but I think most of us like the Christmas season. One of the things I enjoy at Christmas time is getting Christmas cards. I like to see old friends and how their families are growing and expanding. Uh, it's nice to see them, and I just sometimes I enjoy the cards themselves. They're really quite beautiful, and some of them are quite heretical. And I take extreme pleasure in those ones. I know it's kind of weird, but uh, if you've got three wise men standing by a manger, that's a problem because the magi, first of all, we didn't, we don't, there were three gifts. We don't know how many magi there were. And secondly, they came when Jesus was about two. So if you got them in your manger scene, you need to take them out. Uh, sorry to ruin that for you. Uh, if you got the little drummer boy in your manger scene, uh, you need to take him out because that, that didn't happen. Sorry about that. And if you got a talking, talking donkey, um, well, that did happen. That's another part of the Bible, but that doesn't belong in your manger scene either. I don't know where these ideas come from. Maybe just people's imagination. Maybe they're not reading really carefully. They read the Bible years ago and they are remembering bits and pieces. I don't know. In one sense, it doesn't really matter all that much. I'm not at home like scoring your Christmas cards, by the way. Um, but there are things in life that you don't want to get wrong, right? Uh, I do not do a lot of baking, but I learned by one experience that you do not want to mix, mix up baking soda and baking powder in a recipe. Arthie's the only one laughing because she understands exactly what I did. Uh, that's not a good thing. If you're traveling into Canada from America, you don't want to confuse that 100 sign to be 100 miles per hour. Woohoo! here we go. That's 100 kilometers an hour, friend. And you don't want to think Jesus is just one of many options at the religious buffet. When it comes to Jesus, you really need to get things right. Or at the very least, you ought to be sure that the Jesus you're actively rejecting is the Jesus of the Bible and not the Jesus of talk radio or faulty Christmas cards. In one sense, the, the, the whole Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, is about Jesus. But in another sense, Jesus says very little about himself. In fact, we're going to dive into what uh, an older minister of the gospel, J.C. Ryle, said is the only place in Scripture where the heart of Christ is actually named. And we find that in Matthew 11, verse 29. You'll see in the middle of the sentence there that phrase, I am gentle and lowly in heart. And what is he like? He is gentle and lowly. That's where we're heading. But the first thing we need to do is understand what was going on when Jesus chose to reveal this, when he chose to say it. Because understanding that makes this self-disclosure of Jesus all the more striking. So the chapter, chapter 11 in Matthew, if you go back to verse 1 there, you can sort of look, your, look down there as I'm speaking, you'll see it begins 
with a kind of sad event. John the Baptist, who's the, the one who comes before Jesus to get everybody ready for Jesus, John the Baptist, a few years in or at least a year into Christ's ministry, is starting to doubt that Jesus really is the Messiah. That's amazing, right? John the Baptist is doubting that Jesus is who he says he is. And so he sends word. John's in prison. So by his own disciples, he sends word to Jesus. This is Matthew eleven three. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? That's not a statement of faith. No, that's a statement of doubt. Are you the Messiah or not? Because it doesn't look like it. And Jesus' answer to John the Baptist is really quite surprising. It's, it's basically a rebuke. He tells John, you need to make sure your faith is in the right place, John. So look at verse 4. Jesus answered him, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me, the blessed is the one who doesn't stumble or trip over me. So Jesus responds to the doubtful John the Baptist with, with a, by saying, look, you need to have faith in me, John. Look at the works I'm doing. What do they say about me? And so it's a very hard word. It's a, it's a very direct word. It's a very strong word to John. And right after this exchange, he turns to those who do not have faith in him, who are right there around him, or at least in the surrounding climes, and, and he, makes it, he makes it very clear, these people are going to be eternally condemned by him. So you, you see that he denounces here, he's denouncing for their unbelief, he denounces a bunch of towns in Israel where he performed most of his miracles, all those things he said, hey, John, look at all those things I did. And now he goes to those towns. He even goes so far as to say, if, if he had gone to Sodom, which hundreds of years earlier was kind of the sin city in the days of Abraham. If Jesus says, if I had come in those days and gone to Sodom and done the things in Sodom that I've done in your towns, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, if I'd have done the things there, Sodom would have repented. Sodom would have believed and put their faith in me. That's a very obvious word of judgment by Jesus for, for people, for their unbelief. And then right after that, to, to sort of turn the temperature up even further, Jesus makes this very profound claim about himself. He basically says, look, nobody is smart enough on their own to come to know God. <laughs> so, so look at verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I, this is a, Jesus praying to the Father out loud in front of people so we can hear his prayer. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And Jesus is making clear that book smarts, like intelligence, is not going to get you to God. In fact, he's saying that the, only the most humble, the most lowly, will be able to receive his teaching. Little children here is referring to adults uh, who, who have a very childlike faith. And then he goes even further. And he states that when it comes right down to it, it takes God to know God. Verse 27, 
All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now, those, that verse there, verse 27, besides being a claim to divinity, is, is also a claim to exclusivity. Jesus is saying in different, with different vocabulary what he would later say to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's exclusive. Now, you might be asking yourself, why is Jesus making these really, really strong statements? Why is he emphasizing the fact that he's going to be the one to judge sinners? Why is he warning people about having a misplaced faith? Why is he stressing that he's the only one who can initialize a relationship with his father? And I think there's a couple reasons. The first one is our sin, and the second one is his salvation. So first, our sin. What's Jesus doing there? He's, he's looking at these towns in Israel that claim to worship the real God. And he tells the people in these towns, you are worse off than that historical city that was destroyed by fire from heaven. Sodom's sin was wanton homosexuality. Capernaum's sin was a wanton disregard of the Savior. And Jesus' point is, look, sin is sin, and sin is bad. You are worse off than you know. And he looks at that dude, John the Baptist, who's a rock-solid believer that isn't able to make sense out of why Jesus is doing things the way Jesus is doing them, and he tells John, listen, don't get tripped up by your false expectations. Sin is worse than we know. And all of these problems, in the, whether it's in John's life at the moment or in, in other people's lives in these towns, it's all stemming from sin. And you and I have the same problem. We were born sinners. We have confirmed that over and over again by our many sins. And before you became a Christian, if, you're, if you are a Christian, you may not be yet, uh, but before those of us who are Christians, before we became Christians, the Bible says we were under sin. This is Romans 3, 9. And that word under is really important. It means we were under its dominion. We were under its influence. Uh, it, we, were, we were under its sway. We were under its domination. Everything in our life was caught up with our sins. So Jesus is, is putting all this out there because he's about to let us in on the kindness of and love in his heart. And he's being very particular to preamble that with a reminder that he's also the same person going to irrevocably judge sin and sinners. Which means everybody who's not properly aligned with Jesus is in a really bad place. So sin is a big deal. But I also told you that I think it was pondering the salvation that he was bringing that is also in the mind of Christ here. 
Because the other thing this chapter makes clear is his salvation. He's saying that he is the exclusive Savior, but he is the Savior. There's, there's no point looking for another Savior. There isn't one. God, there's one God, and the one God has provided one Savior. It might be this that really bothers people even more than hearing about their sins. For some reason, when it comes to our sins, we we like to think we're not quite as bad as we are, that God is going to overlook some things. He'll he'll be understanding. He's kind of like the, uh, you know, grandpa in the lazy boy, and you you tip over a vase, and he's like, oh, there, there, it's okay. Uh, Like, we we just sort of have these images or this idea that somehow we're going to do a lot of good things, and and we'll impress him with our good things, and and then we'll explain why we made these bad choices because of the terrible circumstances we were in, whatever it is. And maybe that's why people get really irked when they hear that only Jesus can save them. This exclusive claim to be the only way to the one real God sounds preposterous to a lot of Canadians' ears. You mean to tell me that every Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, Sikh, atheist will not go to heaven? That their only hope is to reject their quote-unquote natural religion and ask Jesus to save them? Yes, that's precisely what I mean to tell you because that's precisely what Jesus says. That's why we're earnest to tell you. Does that offend you? Do you know the magicians Penn and Teller? Uh, Penn Gillette uh, is a, an avowed atheist. He's very, in a lot of his shows, he talks about there being no God, that type of thing. And um, one time a Christian uh, gentleman approached him, gave him a Bible. He'd written in front of it something, I don't know what it was, and, and just a very you know, appealing to him to, to read the Bible for himself. And, and Penn... Uh, who's an avowed atheist, was he enraged? No. In fact, he got on the YouTubes and made this little video talking about it in which he said, and I quote, if you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that it's not really worth telling them because this, telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I hope that you can see my motivation is that. I'm just one of many messengers presenting to you a viable solution to your biggest problem, and your biggest problem is sin. And I'm telling you that bad news first in order to help you see the goodness of the good news. And we're headed for the good. So it would be easy to to read the first part of chapter 11, hear all this stuff about Jesus and get a very wrong impression of Jesus, to think he's some angry crank out to, to zap everybody who doesn't pay him lip service. And so... Having said those things, Jesus lets us into his mind, into his personality, into his heart. And when he does, he shows us the fact that Jesus can and Jesus would be glad to introduce you to his Father. 
So listen carefully to what he says. Keeping all that stuff in mind, he's just warned John, he's just denounced these towns, and then he says this in verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What amazing words. The first thing to notice about these words is that they are an invitation. Come to me. This is an invitation for everyone to come to Jesus, not to come to a religion, not to come to some grand cathedral, not to come to some monastery out in the wilderness, but to come to him. And, and, and he, when you come to him, he's different than you might suspect. So Jesus is calling to people that are essentially trying to do it on their own, trying to get through life in their strength. And remarkably, he's offering something to them that you most certainly probably crave as well, which is rest, true rest. Not rest in the sense of your Sunday afternoon nap, amen, hallelujah. Not rest in the sense of early retirement. This rest is an invitation to a different kind of work. After all, there's a yoke to put on. Verse 28, take my yoke upon you. You're wearing a different yoke. Put that one off. Put my yoke on. A yoke is something that could be used with animals or men. If you had a pair of oxen, you put the the yoke around the, the neck, shoulders, and then they could bear the burden. They would split the load. They would bear the burden. They could pull heavy weights for you or whatever it was. But a yoke was also worn by humans, and I kind of suspect this is what Jesus had in mind. Most often, the yoke was used as a kind of carrying pole. You've probably seen this. It goes over the shoulders, and you, you hold on to it, and suspended would be too Typically, very heavy containers, usually of something like water, because water's at the well and you want to get it to your town. And so you'd go every day and you would bear that yoke. In the day in which Jesus said this, the yoke metaphor was was widely understood as a, a picture of discipleship, of coming under the authority or the teaching of another and conforming your life to it. Jesus, later in Matthew, would call out the religious leaders of his day for shoving a brutal yoke onto the shoulders of all those who wanted to seek after God. So Matthew 23, verse 4, he says, they, they, these religious leaders, tie up heavy burdens and lay them on people's shoulders. They themselves are not willing to move move them with their finger, (laughs) But they're putting that burden onto everybody else. And it seems that Jesus has that kind of thing in mind here. He just had said, look, everybody needs to deal with their sins. And one of the dangers when you hear about dealing with your sins is that you, 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 you think, well, I better solve my sin problem. I'll try harder. <laughs> and you're just, you're just putting more water into those buckets. It's getting heavier and heavier. 
You think I'm going to do a bunch of good things. I'm going to do a bunch of religious things. You see, that was the Pharisee's answer to the sin problem. Reduce God's standard down to some, you know, complicated do's and don'ts and make something, make salvation something that is attainable by human effort. Just do this list of things and essentially then you'll buy your salvation from God. But the trouble was that all those do's and don'ts, they functioned like an unbearable yoke on the shoulders of people. It was too much to bear. It was impossible to fulfill. And it didn't do anything about all the sins you'd already committed. Sins that were hanging there like laundry left out on the line for too many days. Maybe you kind of feel that way with God right now. Kind of dirty and exposed, and like it's all just too much and too hard. You know there's a sin problem, but you've given up trying to fix it. You, there's, there's too many rules, too much religion, too many expectations. I cannot possibly meet them. You may be feeling this even if you've thought very little about God before. Well, all of us have this sort of internal justice meter it's continually going off, trying to convince us that, oh, you've done enough here, and then telling us you haven't done enough there. And it can start to feel like this giant weight or, or ball and chain that you're dragging around. Almost everybody I've met has some load that they're carrying, shame over things that you've done in the past or regret over things that you know you should have done or guilt from what you said to somebody last week or sorrow for having given yourself to this person who no longer loves you. And you're, and you're limping through life burdened and weighed down as bright and successful as you may appear on the outside. And then you hear this. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. When Jesus says this, he's focusing his invitation precisely on the troubled and the beaten down in the world. All ye who labor. It's a word that means all those of you who are worn out from hard work, some of our English Bibles translate it as weary. It's that idea, but it's, it's weariness as a result of having worked so hard. All who are gassed, all who are drained, all who are spent, all ye who, you who are weary and heavy laden, those of you who have been saddled with a crushing load, who are, who are bent over with a weight you cannot bear. Kids, I don't know, have you ever tried to pick something up and carry it and it was so heavy it just puts you to the ground? Like maybe you think, like some of my kids occasionally thought, I'm going to give dad a piggyback. <laughs> it is a crushing load. <laughs> Jesus pictures people here like they're worn down slaves being forced to walk another mile with too much of a burden. They are weighed down and worn out. And the way in which Jesus constructs his sentence makes it perfectly clear that he's not talking to people that are 
that he is talking to people who are currently in this state with no end in sight. So he's not addressing people who happen to be having a rough day. He's talking to people who recognize this is my current, ongoing, no end in, no end in sight existence. Everybody who's getting crushed and worn out by life, all of them. Did you see that word, all? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. That word all means Jesus is not simply talking to the people who happen to be there listening to him in the moment. He is, that word all means he's talking to you right now. It is inclusive. All who are worn down, all who need help, and what does he promise to give to those who were worn down and weary? Verse 28, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus is inviting you to a yoke transfer. Throw off the back-breaking yoke of guilt and shame and regret and put on his easy and light yoke of grace. He's saying there is a way to live that's different from the way you're living now. And once you discover it, you will find it to be a different kind of work. His yoke is easy. It fits. It doesn't chafe. It doesn't dig in. His yoke is light. There's a burden to it, but not the kind of burden that crushes or exhausts. Christians often discover the meaning of this experientially. We forget this great truth, and we start to try and do our Christian life in our own strength. And we go and we go and we go, and then we crash and burn. We forget the simple teachings of Jesus who said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do what? Nothing. Nothing. So even after Jesus saves us and makes us Christians, it seems like we have to learn this lesson again and again, but we're not worried. For the same reason you should not be worried if you're thinking about coming to Jesus for the very first time. For look at what Jesus says about himself. Verse 29, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And so we finally get to it. What is Jesus like? What was he like even as he left heaven above and came to dwell with us? What is he like today, right now? He is gentle and lowly. Now, when you consider everything he said so far in this chapter about sin and guilt and punishment, you can imagine if you're there, you're, you're sort of Wow, he just like told John the Baptist, he better get it straightened out. Wow, he just condemned all these cities. Wow, man, and you're kind of backing up a little bit, and then you are startled by these words, come to me. I am gentle and lowly in heart, 
The word gentle is the same word Jesus used in uh, the Beatitudes when he said, (coughs) excuse me, blessed are the meek. Same word, for they shall inherit the earth. So this idea of gentleness or, or meekness is uh, the not getting your own way. You're the kind of person who's the opposite of domineering or cruel. Jesus is gentle in that Jesus is considerate. He remembers we are but dust. He takes into account our weariness, the load that we're carrying. Not only that, he is lowly, which means he's common. He, he's unpretentious. An older English word is mild. It was reflecting on this passage when Charles Wesley picked up those two words and wrote the hymn that begins, Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Look upon a little child, pity my simplicity. Suffer me to come to thee. Suffer means, you know, put up with me coming to you again. What's Wesley doing in that hymn? Wesley is viewing himself as a little child. Wesley understood what Jesus was saying earlier in the chapter, right? When Jesus said, thank you, Father, Lord, if this is verse 25, that Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Just like a small child comes to a parent, we need to come to God. We come humble. We come needy, we come weak. That is exactly the kind of person Jesus is impressed with. And it is exactly the opposite of this kind of person that Jesus is not impressed with. The proud, the accomplished, the person who has it all together. So Jesus looks at you this morning and says, if you're a mess and you can admit it, there's hope for you. People who hear the gospel but ignore it, they are rejected. People who sell themselves out to their sins, rejected. People who try to shape Jesus into the Savior they think he should be, rejected. People who are worn out and weighed down, come to me. And they will come. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. How many more promises do you need to hear from God's word? The God of the universe is looking at you and saying, I'm not some pretentious jerk in the clouds demanding more out of you than you can possibly give. Neither am I cruel and some inconsiderate potentate in the sky. I am in my very heart gentle and lowly, and I have and am willing to give you what you crave, which is rest, peace, wholeness, completeness, relief from the crushing weight of sin and guilt. So come to me. Here I am. I'm ready to fully accept you. Because I am gentle of heart, I will take all your sins on myself. Because I am lowly of heart, I will give you all of my righteousness. Come to me, my child, and live. What a precious, precious invitation. Take up a yoke with no slivers, a burden with no weight, a work that gives rest. 
take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. This might be the most counterintuitive thing of all. Shouldering his yoke, submitting your life to Jesus and his ways will lead you to the contentment and peace that your eternal soul craves. In just a few more chapters, Jesus will describe this same thing using different vocabulary and he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. There is a death that leads to life. There's a self-denial that leads to the self-discovery of the true you. There's a cross-carrying that leads to true rest. So come to Jesus. He bore his cross with the full weight of your sins so you might bear his yoke that gives rest to your soul. Come to me, he says. How do you come? How do you think people came when they were standing right there in front of him? And he said these, these words. I don't think they like awkwardly walked up to him and stood there. <laughs> no, this has always been an action of the heart, hasn't it? When Jesus is saying, come to me, he's inviting you to bring your messy, weighed down heart to his gentle and lowly heart. And of course, to do this requires that somewhat uncomfortable word, repentance. Turning away from all that you previously believed and trusted in and and then putting your complete and total confidence in Jesus. I should say that by total, total confidence, I don't mean perfect confidence. I, I mean something closer to honest confidence. Like that desperate father who cried out to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. That's a childlike prayer in the very best sense. It's honest. It acknowledges its own weaknesses. And yet it is full of confidence that if God answers, problem solved. Dear friend, it is one thing to get things wrong on a Christmas card. It is altogether another thing to get things wrong with your eternal soul. The gentle and lowly Jesus calls you to come. Like that old song. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. Calling for you and for me. See on the portals, he's waiting and watching. Watching for you and for me. Come home. Come home. Ye who are weary, come home. Home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling. Calling, O sinner, come home. Amen.